Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast featuring very done healthcare practice group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. I am Olga Gross-Balzano, Senior Manager at Berida. I am joined for this episode by three members of Berida Healthcare Practice Group. Senior Managers Robin Hoffman and Krista Bernakia and Credential and Client Manager Gretchen Carletta. The title of our podcast is The Alphabet Soup of Accreditation, Credentialing and Privileging. Before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations engaging very done for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory compliance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered, considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. With that, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. Robin, before we jump into our discussion, would you share a little bit about your professional background and the type of services you provide for Beridan clients? Certainly, Olga. I'm very happy to do so. I joined Barry Dunn in July of 2022, and just prior to that, I had served for over six years as the corporate compliance officer at a federally qualified health center in Connecticut. In that capacity, I was responsible for making sure that the health center complied with all of the mandatory components that are expected of federally qualified health centers by the federal government's Health Resources and Services Administration. Alphabet soup, here we come. Um, One of the mandatory program requirements deals with what they call clinical staffing, and that gets into credentialing and privileging. As the compliance officer, I also served as a member of that health center's credentialing and privileging committee. And also, I've had experience, significant experience with joint commission requirements around credentialing and privileging. For two years prior to my coming to Barry Dunn, I served as an appointed member of the Joint Commission's Ambulatory Care Accreditation Advisory Council. In terms of my educational background, I received my undergraduate nursing degrees from the University of Louisville, go cards, and I received my Master of Science in Nursing from Yale University. My area of specialization is community health nursing, and I've been certified in healthcare compliance since March of 2010. So I work closely with Barry Dunn clients on compliance sort of matters. That is quite impressive, Robin. And now I would like uh, Krista uh, to ask you to introduce yourself and um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. Thanks for having me back, Olga. 
It's an absolute pleasure to spend time with you, Robin, and Gretchen today. I lead the credentialing service line, including a team of professionals that, hold on to your hats, ladies, carries over 150 years of experience in our industry. I'm responsible for our strategic planning and visioning. This includes our firm's NCQA Credentials Verification Organization, aka CVO, let's keep with the alphabet soup theme, certification. It's an initiative that Gretchen is also becoming incredibly involved with and we'll speak to a little bit later on. We're a compliance-driven practice group and follow stringent quality and regulatory standards across our five service lines. Enrollment, primary source verification, advisory services, privileging, and exclusion monitoring. We're nimble and well-versed in supporting clients across the healthcare spectrum, regardless of their locale, their complexity, or their accreditation status. Like Robin, I've had an opportunity to work in a variety of accreditation settings. I've been in the industry since the late 90s. I've had stints at a major university-based HMO, as well as a marketplace insurance carrier, and I've been with the firm a little over six years. I've managed everything from medical staff offices, NCQA and Joint Commission accreditation efforts, quality improvement activities, policy development, emergency operations, and healthcare facility planning. I've pretty much seen it all, done it all. I'm passionate about building and sustaining relationships and partnering with our clients to support their mission. It's a great joy to work with my teammates who are here on this podcast today. Great. Thank you so much, Krista. I rely on your knowledge so much these days. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful to have such incredible resource. Gretchen, we are very pleased that you are joining us for today's discussion. We would appreciate learning more about your background in healthcare and how you, uh, what kind of clients and what kind of work you do with Barry Dunn. Well, thank you, Olga. Thanks so much for having me. I am thrilled to be with you, Krista and Robin, today. In my current role, I'm a credentialing client manager with Barry Dunn, overseeing daily activity of the credentialing and enrollment services team. Twelve years ago, I began with our team as, as a part-time credentialing specialist handling provider enrollments. I've grown into this position through real-life experience, surrounded by subject matter experts, researching and collaborating with our clients. Currently, several team members report directly to me. We work with multiple small and medium specialty group practices, solo practitioners, FQHCs, labs, larger healthcare systems, behavioral health groups, as well as telehealth practices. I'm responsible for maintaining the high quality standards that an NCQA certified CVO requires. Most of the clients that I work with are in the Northeast and on the East Coast, though we do span into the Midwest and as far reaching as Hawaii. Our telehealth clients have providers reaching every state. That means that our credentialing team is experienced with verifying credentials for each of these states and our enrollments team is handling enrollments in over 35 states with nearly 200 various commercial and governmental insurances. This is just one of the things that I truly enjoy about our work. We like to say never dull, 
And part of that is in the variety that we experience each day. I am so thrilled to have such wonderful panel uh, today. Let's start with our discussion questions. Robin, has the Health Resources and Services Administration developed a set of requirements specifically for FQHCs about their clinical staffing? And everybody's talking about clinical staffing these days, so I know it is a very hot topic. Absolutely, Olga. It certainly is. The Health Resources and Services Administration first issued their compliance manual for federally qualified health centers back in August of 2018. There's a specific chapter, and because I'm a wonky sort of person, I will say it is chapter five, and that deals with the uh, credentialing and privileging. They title that chapter Clinical Staffing. And I'm going to step back for a second and, and sort of go back to, I had mentioned that by training, I'm a community health clinical nurse specialist. I think it's really important as we are thinking about credentialing and privileging that we always put the patient as the, the source of importance in delivering health services. So making sure that clinicians have the credentials that they attest to having and um, the privileges to provide those services in a safe manner is incredibly important. From a health center's point of view, the Health Resources and Services Administration sends in inspectors, if you will, to do what's called an operational site visit or an OSV, back to our alphabet soup theme, every three years. But it's critically important that on an ongoing basis that a health center is maintaining all of the requirements and all of the work that it needs to do to effectively and safely credential and privilege its providers. And the reason for that is, is that federally qualified health centers once a year need to fill out a very detailed online application to the federal government so that they can maintain their clinical malpractice coverage. Many people don't realize it, but federally qualified health centers get their malpractice coverage through the Health Resources and Services Administration. So if you want to maintain that very critical malpractice coverage, you need to make sure that your credentialing and your privileging meets all of the federal requirements. And I would like now to turn to my colleagues, Olga and Krista, to speak a little bit about what those terms credentialing and privileging mean, because they do have different definitions. Thank you. Yeah, Robin, I, I'm going to echo everything you said. What we do truly boils down to taking care of patients, helping our clients do that in an efficient, effective, and quality way. So much of what I've worked on with Olga in recent times really boils down to making sure our clients are meeting the regulatory and enrollment requirements necessary to deliver the appropriate patient care. So, so I'm going to take a couple minutes to talk a little bit about credentialing which differs from privileging and even enrollment. There's an underlying thread that connects them all, but they're all very, very different. This is what I'm going to talk about with respect to, to credentialing. Like so much in our industry, it's a term that's used in a variety of ways and not often the correct way. Fun fact for everyone, 
the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines credentialing as the process of assessing and confirming the qualifications of a licensed or certified healthcare practitioner. Okay, our listeners may say, what does that really mean? Because we've just come off of the holidays, I'll frame it this way. It's really important that healthcare organizations are always making their lists and checking them twice. Credentialing allows entities to make sure their providers are in good standing and that their history lines up exactly as they shared it. It sets the stage for privileging and enrollment, dots the I's, crosses the T's, and closes every loop. Credentialing includes a broad assortment of services that are regulated, time-sensitive, and interconnected. As if that's not enough, requirements are variable by state, payer, accrediting body, and organizational standards. There is so much out there for organizations to keep straight. As you can see, ladies, I can go on about this for days. I won't, but I will say that credentialing is the foundation on which everything builds. We'll talk a little bit more about that later today, but I'm going to turn it over to Gretchen to talk a little bit more about privileging and what that means to organizations across the spectrum. Certainly, Krista. You know, just to follow on what you mentioned about the foundation, they always say without a strong foundation, everything crumbles. Many people confuse these two terms interchangeably. Privileging, by definition, is the process where a healthcare provider is authorized to perform a specific set of patient care services based on an evaluation of the individual's credentials and performance. With that in mind, we collaborate with our providers and their assigned agents to prepare their applications and supporting documentation in advance of being presented to a facility. This helps to ensure that the information being submitted is complete and accurate. Taking these steps tends to allow for a smoother verification process on the part of the facility. And that is true. And that is such an important service that we provide. I know I have a lot of clients that truly appreciate it. And then, of course, I have clients who should be aware of the service that we offer because it would make their life much easier. All right, Robin. So as we are preparing for this podcast, we talked about the fact that many FQHCs and other clients are accredited for ambulatory care by either the Joint Commission, TJC, or the Accreditation Association for Ambulatory Healthcare, AAACH, alphabet soup right here. Both organizations also offer certification as a patient-centered medical home. In addition, some FQHCs obtain recognition as a patient-centered medical home from the National Committee for Quality Assurance, also known as NCQA. Robin, can you tell us can you tell our listeners about it? Absolutely. Boy, that was like alphabet soup on steroids to use the term. (laughs) It is alphabet soup. So you got TJC, you got AAAHC, you got NCQA, you got PCMH. Uh, Do I hear a number? It, It is amazing. In September of 2022, just a few months ago, the Health Resources and Services Administration 
issued to federally qualified health centers what HRSA refers to as a program assistance letter or a PAL to keep on our theme of uh, alphabet soup. So they were getting word out to health centers across the country that HRSA offers assistance to health centers on their accreditation and PCMH recognition initiative. Health centers are eligible to receive resources in order to seek accreditation by an accrediting organization and also to receive assistance to become a patient-centered medical home. So any interested federally qualified health center should submit a notice of intent to HRSA. And shall I, dare I say, that's called an NOI? Yes, it actually is. So the health center can seek to pursue patient-centered medical home recognition either by the Joint Commission or by the National Committee for Quality Assurance or the Accreditation Association for Ambulatory Healthcare. While that participation in order to be a patient-centered medical home is purely voluntary, I will say that having that kind of recognition is a definite plus in terms of helping to advance high-quality, accessible primary care. It certainly helps in terms of recruiting talented clinicians when they hear that a health center or any ambulatory care organization has that kind of recognition. And having that external recognition as well is really, really a great thing, whether you're talking about a federally qualified health center or any primary care center, having that kind of recognition really helps you to market the services of your organization to families and individuals who may be looking for a primary care practice. I will say that having come from a federally qualified health center that had ambulatory care accreditation and PCMH accreditation from the Joint Commission, as well as PCMH recognition from the NCQA, there are extremely detailed accrediting requirements that focus in specifically on credentialing and privileging. And because of that complexity, I will say having worked so closely with joint commission initiatives, frequently when joint commission does their visit for ambulatory health care, they will find issues with credentialing and privileging. It is very, very Byzantine, very detailed information that they are seeking. Because of that complexity, some health centers and some health systems and other ambulatory care providers will opt for contracting with an external organization that is known as a credentials verification organization or a CVO to conduct their credentialing activities. And I am thrilled to say that my colleagues can talk with you about what it entails to be designated as a CVO. I must confess, I really do not know much about CVO. Gretchen, can you help us? With Absolutely. This? I'd be happy to. We assist our clients by streamlining the verification process with strict adherence to compliance policies. 
Barry Dunn is one of the few non-hospital-based NCQA certified CVOs providing these services to physician practices, health systems, and FQHCs. NCQA states that verifying credentials is an essential safety component of the healthcare system. Healthcare organizations need to establish the qualifications of their licensed medical professionals by assessing their background before they're authorized to provide care. This essentially determines if providers are who they say they are. We verify all of their certifications, licenses, education, work, and malpractice history. We also perform ongoing monitoring services for Medicare and Medicaid sanctions, as well as watching for state sanctions and limitations on licensure between those recredentialing cycles. This helps to ensure that our client organizations are notified if and when quality or safety issues arise. We verify to the NCQA standards and also customize additional elements that our clients may require to meet the needs of their accreditation and internal policy. We work with facilities that are accredited by other agencies, such as the Joint Commission that Robin has mentioned. Sounds like big, important uh, job. Thank you. I appreciate this introduction. So we talked about a lot of things today, a lot of different agencies, a lot of different requirements, a lot of different approaches to certification and um, enrollment and compliance. I am looking to you ladies to help me summarize this discussion and identify the most important takeaways for our listeners today. Robin, would you mind uh, starting? No, no problem. Happy to do so, Olga. Certainly. I would, again, go back to step one and say it's really important for everybody to not lose sight of the fact that effective credentialing is a critically important patient safety protection. Also, I would say having come so recently from a primary care environment, I would say that if your primary care practice, your federally qualified health center, or your health system has experienced recent turnover amongst your credentialing staff. And let's face it, everybody's talking about the turnover in staff who work in healthcare environments. That if you've had turnover in this critically important process, you should really think about seeking external assistance pronto from someone like a credentialing verification organization, such as, for instance, Barry Dunn. I would say that if you are accredited by the Joint Commission or by the AAAHC, you certainly don't want any negative findings if there's been any slippage in your credentialing processes. Also, I would suggest you really want to make sure that you are looking at how your incoming new clinicians get enrolled with your state Medicaid agency, the Medicare program, and commercial health plans that your practice participates in. If that process, that what I call provider enrollment, is not handled within your credentialing department. Errors in health plan enrollment can really have a negative impact on your practice's revenue cycle due to possible denial of claims because the clinician is not correctly enrolled in the health plan or with Medicaid or with Medicare. You know, Robin, I couldn't agree with this more. 
I echo every single thing you just touched on, my friend. It's it's so important that entities don't get themselves tripped up with their accreditation body or any other external resource that they work with. We don't want to see their patients suffer. We don't want to see the dollars suffer. I'm going to tell you that credentialing, privileging, and enrollment, the whole shebang is often overlooked and misunderstood. Folks working in our healthcare system need to be sure that someone in their organization has eyes on this. And if not, as you mentioned, advisory or other external assistance may be a really wise investment in keeping patients safe, care moving forward, and the dollars flowing. I would encourage our listeners to know the ingredients in their alphabet soup. And my goodness, we've talked so much about alphabet soup today that I might need to add soup to my meal plan for the week. But in all seriousness, everything we do is in the details and is just so complex. I'll remind our listeners that Big Brother is watching CMS, accrediting bodies like the ones we talked about today, NCQA, TJC, AAAHC, and even others we didn't cover like DNV and other regulatory agents that are out there. They all have guideposts in place that our listeners are obligated to follow. As the pandemic ends, there's going to be an increased focus on areas that impact credentialing, privileging, and enrollment. Waivers are going to be unwound. Obligations are going to be expanded. And and one takeaway, I would encourage everybody listening today to remind their providers to check their state licensing CME requirements. That's just one area that there's going to be an increased scrutiny on in the coming days and weeks. I would say providers and organizations are going to really need to make sure that they're hitting their required marks with even more care and precision going forward. It's just so, so critical and really does touch everything in the business side of our industry. So, so Gretchen, with that, do you have some final thoughts on why this all matters so much? Absolutely, Krista. I'm certain we could chat all day about how undervalued credentialing and provider enrollment work can be, but that is truly a mistake. We know from years of experience how critical it is from the business perspective. Enrollment and its maintenance is one of the most vulnerable links to an organization's revenue cycle. Neglecting the importance of provider enrollment can cost an organization millions of dollars. That's not an exaggeration. Something that we often hear of with our clients, especially new clients, is an assumption that enrollment travels from one practice to the next with a provider. But the reality is that there are additional steps that must be taken to ensure a provider is not only enrolled, but also associated with the organization when they join a different practice. Our team of experienced subject matter experts is ready to proactively assist and assess situations with our clients helping to ensure that they don't fall into the negative scenarios we've mentioned today. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you, Robin and Krista. So I think what I hear from all of you is that it's very complex and your best recommendation to providers of any type that if you are a certified provider, If you are enrolled with Medicare, Medicaid, 
um, if you're enrolled with uh, quality agencies who um, require certification and recertification. If you're not 100% sure what you need to do, ask somebody who does, like you. And then, Krista and Gretchen, I would like to ask you, because some of our providers are more sophisticated and uh, have better handle on what's happening, do you offer different level of support to to our clients? And who are your clients today? I know we talked about FQHCs, but I know that's not the only type of provider you work with. Is that correct? Yes, Olga, that's correct. We work with clients across the entire spectrum of the healthcare industry, federally qualified health centers, medical groups, physician practices, behavioral health, substance use disorder, hospitals, health systems. Oh, Gretchen, I'm sure there's several that I am, I am missing. But, but as Gretchen mentioned earlier, our clients are coast to coast. We work with everybody from small solo practitioners to large organizations with hundreds and thousands of providers and dozens of locations. So, so there's a lot of complexity. Um, but we have a tremendous amount of subject matter expertise on our team that could really help our listeners navigate through these really, really complex waters and in an industry that is changing rapidly. So we can really help with that peace of mind when it comes to credential and certification. Wonderful. I uh, thank you so much for this discussion today. I'm sure our listeners will find it very helpful and useful. And uh, on behalf of Robin, Krista, Gretchen, I uh, thank you all our listeners. We welcome your feedback about this episode and potential future episodes that may be of interest to you. Thank you.